Well, guys, if I haven't met you, my name's Nick, and uh, I'm the lead pastor here. I'm going to be getting us into God's Word momentarily. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, um, you want to raise your hand, and, and we'll get a Bible to you. Um, we're going to be in Luke's Gospel this morning, as we've been now for, well, quite some time. Um, we're in Luke chapter 6. Verse 37 through 42, that's what we're going to read this morning. Um, we'll probably be in this section of scripture for a, li a little while. Um, some stuff here, some themes here that are of critical importance. In fact, it's so important to me that, that I actually really struggled with how to teach this. There was so much I wanted to bring out uh, that I actually had some trouble um, putting my thoughts together. So I was up late and I, I, I trust that uh, what I'm going to bring you here today will, will be a blessing. But just know we're going to probably spend mm, three, four weeks in this text just because I think it is incredibly uh, important for the church. Um, so Luke chapter 6 verses 37 to 42. Let me read it and then pray and we will uh, we'll dive in. Jesus is in the middle of a sermon here, and he says this. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Verse 39, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Let's pray. God, you care so much about each person in this room and every one of your disciples everywhere. And the last thing you want is for us to be given over to self-deception and critical spirits and haughtiness and pride, judgmentalism. God, you want to set us free from the insecurities that lead us to tear others down and make ourselves feel better. God, you want to lead us in the new way. The way of the Spirit, the way of the cross, the way of love. We are your disciples, Jesus. We desire to 
learn from you to take your yoke upon us and learn from you. So I'm praying that this morning, through your word, even as it is expounded through my mouth, God, you would come with your spirit and preach and minister. Open eyes. Help hearts to get untangled with the stuff of this world and rewired, put back together. I can't do what I desire to see happen here, Lord. Only you can do it. And so I pray that you would do it here in our midst for our good and for your glory. It's in your name that we ask these things. Amen. Let me begin this way. Um, As a pastor of a church, one of the things that you think about sometimes is, is what you want your church to be known for. What you hope your church will be known for. Now, I don't, I don't mean this in any sort of uh, egocentric way, like an exercise in, man, what's my legacy going to be? What are people going to think of me when they see my church? No, I'm not talking about that. What I mean is when we gather for worship and people come in and visit us, And when we scatter out on mission in the city and in our neighborhoods, what will people think about our community? What will the culture of our people be like? What will we be known for? Now, I've I've told you before, and even even just last week, I think I reiterated it. um, I want to be known preeminently as as that church that just can't get over the cross of Jesus Christ, the gospel. We just keep talking about the cross, studying the cross, singing about the cross, rooting our identities deep in the realities and the promises of the cross. And we start looking, we're a people that start looking more and more like the cross in the way that we lay down our lives in love for one another and for the world. That, I mean, that would be a dream of mine. And I love to see little bits of that happening and God already at work in in, in those sorts of ways in our midst. But I suppose the um, flip side to what I want our church to be known for in many ways actually starts to surface in this text here this morning. Uh, It's kind of like Jesus is addressing what the the anti-cross community might look like and the sort of tendencies that they will have. Uh, This sort of anti-cross community is what I see outlined here by Jesus, and it's everything I don't want us to be like. I don't want to be known as a church that's quick to judge others, or condemning, or unforgiving, or withholding, and stingy, and selfish. I don't want to be known as the church that's blind in our pride, that thinks we've got it all right, but everyone else can see we've got it wrong. 
I don't want to be known as, as the church, that, that place where they think they're above everyone else. They kind of talk down to you there. I don't want to be known as the church with the beam in its eye. You know, where like people come in here and we just kind of drop the Bible on their broken hearts and give them black eyes, you know, in the name of Jesus. That's not what we want this church to be known for. But I think um, you see this, and you probably know friends who feel this way about the church in general because of their experiences. Churches are often known more for what they're against than what they're for. Often known more for what they hate than what they love. For what they picket than what they support for their laws, uh, than for their grace. They're known more for their judgments than for their mercies. Now, some of that can't be helped. We hold to certain biblical convictions, and the world will say these things about us no matter how much we love them. But man, to what degree we can help this, I don't want to be known as that kind of church. That's one of the reasons why when I first came here, inherited an awesome leadership team, um, you know, about a, whatever it was, almost two years ago now, I suppose. I, I, one of the first things I did was have us listen to a sermon uh, by John Piper so we could discuss this. And, and the whole sermon was on humility, true leadership, and, and how if we're going to be leaders, we have to be broken by the cross, not given over to spiritual pride, thinking that, oh, hey, you know, we're leaders. It means we got the answers. You sit down, shut up. We'll tell you how it's done. No way. We lead the way to the cross, which means we lead the way to the floor. We're on the ground. We're broken by our sin and we're amazed by his grace. And in that, we can lead a church into health. But if that's not in place, then all this other stuff starts to settle into the community and rot it out from the core. So I, don't, I desperately don't want our church to be known for these sorts of things, and Jesus doesn't either. That's why he says what he says in our text this morning. Uh, we know from... Earlier in chapter 6, verse 20, where this sermon that Jesus is giving uh, begins, we know that he's, he's essentially preaching, teaching to his disciples here. Uh, it says as much there uh, in verse 20. So these are words for the church. This is Jesus' heart for the kind of fledgling church community that's gathering around him, those who want to follow him. These are words for those whom he is trying to raise up and send out. This is what he wants us to be like, or at least these are the things he wants us to push against so that we can be more like him. In this text, um, Jesus is, is dealing with, with three things, uh, essentially. That's kind of how I'll break down this message in next week's. Um, first, we see that he is dealing with the disciples' genetics, and that's verses 37 to 38. You might not know what I mean by that at first, but hopefully you will when I'm done. Uh, 
the disciples' genetics. And then in verses 39 through 40, he's going to deal with the disciples' training. And then for next week, we'll get to uh, the disciples' ministry there in verses 41 and 42. Okay? So let's dive in here to the disciples' genetics, verses 37 to 38. Uh, In these two verses, Jesus gives his disciples four commands, if you notice. The first two are are put negatively, and then the second two are put positively. We have judge not, condemn not, and then forgive and give. Now, in the first two commands, Jesus is dealing with the critical spirit that ought not to characterize his disciples. The critical spirit that he wants to push against, that he knows so quickly kind of takes root in our hearts and in a church community. If we look at these two commands just briefly for a moment, to judge someone essentially, and this is, we'll deal with this more next week, but uh, to judge someone is to kind of set myself up over them and then kind of take pleasure in, in, in cutting them down. You've been there on either side of that equation. It's no good, but man, we're either, we're either the voice with the words kind of sharp, cutting people down, taking pleasure in it, or we've been wounded by that sort of thing. Well, that's what Jesus here is saying uh, is judgment, and he's calling us not to do it. To condemn someone just takes this judgment essentially to its logical end, Okay. It just takes the judgment that we're doing and and, and brings it to uh, its final conclusion. And that is to say, man, I've been cutting you down and cutting you down. In condemnation now, I'm essentially cutting you off. It's done. It's as if we go to kind of the end of the story for this individual. We say, yeah, I read the last line and it's not going to end well for you. I already know there's no hope for someone like you. I'm through with you. And you know what? God is through with you too. That's condemnation. It's the opposite, really, of the love that Paul calls us to in like 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, for example. You remember this? You probably heard this at the last wedding you were uh, attending. <laughs> I wonder how many of us are living this out with our brides. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So condemnation says, it's over for you. I'm done with you. Love, as Paul calls us to it, says, man, it's never over. I'm I'm hoping all things for you. I know what God can do. Are you kidding me? I've seen him do it with me. Condemnation not only opposes this love that we're called to, it opposes all that God who is love stands for. Let me read this to you. I mean, you know John 3.16, but I wonder how familiar you are with the verse that follows. Let me read verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. But in order that the world might be saved through him. So God sends his son because he's unwilling to condemn. He doesn't want to judge. He would rather, I mean, this is the love of our father. He would rather cut down and cut off his own beloved son than cut down and cut off you and I. That is the proclamation of the cross. It's saying to the world, man, don't die in your sins. There is no reason to die in your sins. I love you and I love you this much. When we judge and when we condemn others, therefore, it's as if we kind of snuff that light out. We kind of mute the message of the cross. We say, no, 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 no. Yes, God died for me. Yes, God sent his son for me. Yes, a person like me can be saved. But no, I'm sorry. You're beyond the limits of grace. There's nothing God can do for you. That's condemnation. I wonder if you've ever said that to someone, perhaps not with your words, but with your deeds. If you lose hope for a person and think, man, they're beyond. I'm done with them. I've tried. It's over. You ever been there or have you been on the other side of that? God forbid, in a church, even from leaders, <laughs> you're done. Cut you down, cut you off. That's not the spirit that ought to characterize a disciple of Christ. And that's why he's, and that's why he's gathering together and saying, judge not, condemn not. You'll see it soon, but man, your God, he's the God of the resurrection. You know what that means? When everyone else is saying it's dead, when everyone else is saying it's over, God's saying it's just beginning. And so he can do that sort of thing with your spouse, with your kid, with your boss, with whoever you're done with. (laughs) And he can do it with you and with me. Now, in the second two commands that Jesus gives us here, he's, he's dealing with the generous spirit that ought to characterize his disciples. So first, the critical spirit that ought not to be in us, and now the generous spirit that I should pray is. And I think in many ways I already see it at work in us. But let's look at these for a moment. What's translated forgive here, at least in the ESV, it's interesting. In the Greek, it's a word that, that more broadly means this. And I just read this out of the, the uh, Greek dictionary that I have. Uh, it means to grant acquittal, to set free, to release, or to pardon. In other words, this word translated forgive here, that Jesus is saying forgive, it conjures up this image of cell doors opening and prisoners going free. Release from prison, pardon for guilt, being set free, acquitted, 
prison doors are opening in that word. And really, when we stop and think about it, it's just a wonderful way to, to, to illustrate forgiveness, to picture forgiveness. It's like, man, letting people out of our prison <laughs> and letting them go free. Where once it was, you owe me and you will sit in this cell until you pay me back. Now in Christ, it is, you're free. And I forgive you and I still love you. That's forgiveness that Jesus is calling us to hear. But there's more that he says. He calls us to give. Uh, and that would be the final of the four commands there. Um, and now to give here essentially, again, kind of takes now this forgiveness to its logical end. Uh, the amazing thing about the Christian we kind of covered this a little bit last week, is that we don't, just, uh, we don't just kind of let our enemies go or let those who hurt us go and kind of stay in the neutral. Fine, you can leave the prison, but I don't ever want to see your face again. Don't you come back around here. <laughs> no, instead, we kind of move from not just covering sins and forgiving to giving we pursue them out of the prison now and, and, and shower them with our blessing. You see, we're not just kind of letting people go or washing our hands and okay, all right. We're actually pursuing and overflowing with love, even for those who have hurt us. Not just forgiving, but giving. Let me ask this. Is there anyone in your prison right now? Is anyone in your life down in the dungeons of your heart? <laughs> like they hurt you big time and there's no way this relationship is just going to kind of go back to normal. There's no way you're just going to kind of smile and, 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 and have, have a good time with this person again. No, no, no. Not until they show that they are sorry and that they're going to pay you back in one way or another. And if they have good behavior for a few weeks, well, then maybe we'll be back on good terms with the people in your prison even now. Maybe they've been there for years and you just kind of throw them scraps every now and again. Keep them alive. <laughs> but Jesus is coming to us in this text and he's saying, man, that ought not to be. Open the door. Let them out. Let them out. I mean, we know those silly kind of songs that are kind of cheesy about it, but it's so true. When we forgive, we're not just releasing them from prison. We, we, we are something in us is being set free as well. And as I thought about this, I'm going to get ahead of myself here for a moment. But as I was thinking about this image of releasing from prison, I couldn't help. I could not help but think of Barabbas. Remember the story in the Gospels how uh, around the Passover time, I mean, Jesus is about to be crucified and it's around the Passover time. And there was this custom in those days for uh, at that time there to be a release of one of the prisoners. 
And, and, and Pilate kind of brings him out. He's like, okay, this is an easy answer. Who do you want to go free now, guys, Jesus or Barabbas? I mean, you got this guy who it's debatable whether he should be even here at all. And then you got this guy who's a full-on criminal, you know, insurrectionist, whatever he was. I can't remember. Sinner. The choice is clear, right? Give us Barabbas. You serious? What should I do with Jesus? Crucify him. Well, what's that a picture of? But sinners going free from prison, a prison they deserve to be in, and Christ going in behind the doors he has he doesn't belong behind. There's no business being in a prison cell. No business hanging on a cross. But it goes there for us. And therefore the call to the Christian community, the church, the disciples is, man, forgive and give. Let him out of your prison and pursue him with blessing. That's what God does. This is the generous spirit that ought to characterize a disciple of Christ. Now, I, I kind of got ahead of myself there, uh, and I knew that I might. But I want to still set us up uh, for a discussion here uh, by, by looking at, at this text in its context. Because when we put these commands back uh, in the context of these two verses... I mean, if you're reading it like I do, there, there's something that's kind of troubling about it. There's something that kind of makes us sit back for a moment and go, wait, 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 wait. Is Jesus promoting like salvation by works here? Is this kind of like, hey, we do and then we get back from God? Is that what he's saying? I mean, look at these verses now uh, all together again. Verse 37, judge not, he says. And you will not be judged. Okay. Condemn not. And you will not be condemned. Forgive. And you will be forgiven. Give. And it will be given to you. And then he comes down and sums it up again at the end. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And I'm sitting there reading this and I'm going, but Jesus, what are you teaching? What are you saying? That if we want the love of, our, of, of the Father, if we want the love of God, we better first be loving? That if we want to be forgiven, we first have to figure out uh, down here on earth how to forgive? Or it's not going to happen? Is that what you're saying? Where's the gospel in all of this? Well, it's actually not very far away at all. This is one of the dangers in um, going through Scripture section by section, like inevitably you have to do. Uh, sometimes you will lose track of the greater context. In this case, man, if you just read verse 37 and went on, you'd forget the, the verse that came immediately before this, verse 36. In fact, some translators, they, we don't even know where to put verse 36. Some put it in the previous section in their translations and others included it in this section because they couldn't figure out where did it belong. But let me tell you something, it belongs in both. 
So look at this with me for a moment. Verse 36 is what kind of uh, leads into these commands of verse 37 and verse 38. Jesus says this, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Now, in light of who your father already is, judge not, condemn not, forgive and give. In other words, the call for us to be merciful is grounded in the mercy God has already been showing us. I mean, who comes first, the chicken or the egg? Nobody knows. Who comes first, the father or the son? The child, the parent, or the child, everybody knows. Parents. And so he's saying, man, look at the father and how he's treating you. And listen, you go and do the same. You go and do the same. And with the mention of God as our father here, something even deeper, even greater comes into play. Jesus is essentially making it plain. He's talking to those who have been born again, to those who've been adopted uh, into the family of God, would call him their father. And, And the reality here is that now these are the people who draw from a different gene pool. When we have a father in heaven who is merciful, we now have the genetics of that kind of mercy moving through us. Let me illustrate this for you. Uh, it's fresh on my mind. We have a little boy, Levi, in our house right now, about five months old, you know, almost. And, you know, when you have a newborn, one of the things that uh, inevitably you're going to start discussing is, who does this kid look like? Who does he look like? Oh, he's got he's got your nose. He's got my head. He's got your when you know, and there's kind of this discussion going around among family and friends. Who does this boy look like? Well, when I look at him, I kind of see both. And you know what? That's how it ought to be. I think he's going to look, in other words, like his parents. He's got our genetics. You see. So there's going to be something of our eyes or the blue eyes that Megan and I have or the, the blonde hair that we had when we were kids or the, the, so that sort of stuff is going to find its way to our child. You see, he's drawing from our gene pool. And so when when Jesus, if we look now at, at that at our text again in light of verse 36, what we realize is that the whole point of this discussion is turning on this idea of God as your father and his gene pool, his genetics working out through you. So that the father who is merciful, or in verse 35, who is is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, that God is your father. Well, guess what? You're going to start to look like him. You're going to start to look like him. People are going to be able to identify. Oh, like father, like son. That's crazy. Look at that. Born again from above. New genetics. Son of the most high, he says in verse 35. That's who we are. So we're not 
talking about salvation by works here in verses 37 to 38. We're talking about the outflow, the outworking of a disciple's genetics. But these verses, uh, verse 37 and 38, do, however, give us a great cause to uh, stop and reflect and evaluate for a moment. Because I think what they do remind us of is, is that though God has broken the scales, like we talked about last week in his dealings with us, though God has not dealt with us fairly but been merciful and given to sinners salvation, we can often take those scales that he broke, dust them off, bring them back out in our relationships, and use them with one another. Ah, 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 ah. And we, we work with one another on this sort of measurement, as Jesus would, would say. And we start to get stingy. We start to get tight. We start to get criti- you know, critical with one another. Or these words remind us that while we can rejoice in the flow of his mercy to us, we can at the same time be sadly refusing to let that mercy flow out from us to others. That's why Jesus has to command these things to us. It, 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 we need to be taught. We need to be reminded. Judgment, I mean, this judgment thing, this critical thing, it's going to take root in us unless we remember, man, this is who our father is. This is where I'm drawing my, my genes from. This is what he's calling me to be. And he said, man, there are times where you are going to love coming to church and sing about his mercy that's flowing to you from the cross, and you're going to stop it there. I said, but I don't want to show mercy to that person or that person or that person. This is a dangerous place we can get in sometimes. I mean, there are so many texts I could have led you to, but the essential truth of the matter is this, that we can actually, uh, as we dam up the flow of his mercy, we can actually end up damning ourselves in the end. That's where he's going. Man, if you don't forgive, you've no evidence that you've really been moved deeply and changed by the Father's forgiveness. And it's not going to end well if you maintain that heart. I want to sing to God and love him and his love for me, but I don't want to love my neighbor. That is a dangerous place to be. Because as he says in verse 38, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So, so I encourage you, Excuse me. Don't push back on your father when when he commands uh, us to do certain things and it's hard and we don't understand and we don't like it. He's making something wonderful of us. He's making us like himself. He's training his children. And this leads me now really to the second heading, the disciples training, the disciples training. This is verses uh, 39 to 40. I want to be careful with this, but I'm just going to say it. Uh, Hopefully you know what I mean by it. But in one sense, it's not enough simply to have the father's genetics. Okay? 
In one sense, it's not enough simply to have the father's genetics. Because of the temptations uh, that we just kind of talked about towards judgment and unforgiveness and the the, the drag that we're going to have to fight of our flesh in this life, just having his genetics is not enough. We need his training. The father's genetics now leads us into what we also need, which is the son's training. We need to learn from Jesus how to be human again. If I were to keep going with um, the illustration I'm I'm using here with Levi, this is crazy. I I didn't know this, but think about this with me for a moment. Uh, When you take a newborn home from the hospital, um, one of the things that they recommend you do is keep them very, very close to you, especially in the first days of their life, first weeks of their life. Keep them very, very close to you. And that means, you know, you're going to hold them right here against your skin or, or you're going to keep them in your arms or, you know, when they're sleeping, they're going to, and you're sleeping, they're going to be in the same room as you. We're going to stay close to our, our, our little boy. Now, parents do this naturally they they want to be near their newborn child but um there are actually reasons beneath this uh, profound physiological reasons for why we need to stay near to our kids in these early days i had no idea but one of the reasons i guess is that they actually learn how to breathe and kind of how to pace the rhythm of their breath by being near you as you breathe by sitting on your chest and feeling it go up and down. A little baby, when they come home, their breathing can get all irregular and scattered, and it helps them to hear, to be close to their parents. And they kind of learn, and they key the rhythm of their breath off of ours. In other words, having Megan's in my genetics in one sense, isn't enough for Levi. He needs to uh, spend time with us, to be close to us, to learn from us what it means to be human. And that's kind of where I'm going here within this text and where Jesus is going to take us because this is precisely what we need from Jesus. We need to stay close to him and learn from him. Sure, we know our father has adopted us and we have his genetics. Now we need to know what does that look like and help me, Jesus, as we work this out. Teach me how to breathe. The word disciple, we remember, literally means learner we need to be a disciple of christ we need to learn from him how to be human again in the way god created it but jesus knows that though we desperately need this sort of thing there's this impulse in us that will push against it that we naturally think we know we naturally think we've got it we're kind of resistant to learning and following we're ready to lead and that's why jesus goes on to say what he says next look at verse 39 he tells him this parable can a blind man lead a blind man will they not both fall into a pit that's just quick easy probably the shortest parable in all the bible 
It's right there, just a one-liner. But I, I guess around Palestine in Jesus's day, uh, falling into a pit was like actually a thing. <laughs> I didn't realize this. So I thought, oh, it's just hyperbole again. You're like a beam in your eye. I guess falling into a pit was actually a thing where uh, because they were in Palestine, were always in search of water. They'd be digging holes and wells and all this, and ah, nothing's there, or, ah, it dried up. And so the ground would be pocked, and there'd be, there'd be holes and pits all over the place, and that's no place for a blind man to be walking, right? It'd be a dangerous thing for a blind man to be cruising out alone in that scenario. He needs someone to lead him. But Jesus in this parable goes even further. He's not just talking about the danger of a blind man walking on his own. He's actually talking about the utter absurdity. It's in us, you guys. Where, where a blind man, or in this scenario, this blind man is saying, no, no, no. Listen, not only can I handle walking around Palestine on my own, I'm ready to lead, baby. Put me in. I know where the pits are. I got this. Come on, blind man. I'll teach you how to see. And he's now leading others. And Jesus said, man, it's the blind leading the blind. And they're going to end up in the pit. And he gets to the heart of the matter there in verse 40 when he says this. A disciple is not above his teacher. He knows there's this impulse in us to push away, to resist the training that we need from him. And I'll tell you what, Levi, he's going to get a little older. And you want to know what he's going to be doing? Two, three, four, five years, the same things my daughters are doing. I mean, I had this ridiculous, I have these experiences every day. Every day. This is, this is one from last week. I took my kids on a hike to give mommy a break. I went, I asked you last week for a place with wildflowers. The Craigs were kind enough to say, man, we went, here's where we saw it. I took them Monday and we're going, man. And Bella was awesome at hiking and everything. Chloe was awesome. Levi was right here. We, he pooped on me, which is a whole other story. It was not, not good. She remembers like 90 degrees out too. So it was crazy. But here, there, I got into this argument with my three-year-old. You want to know what it was over? We heard this clicking noise in the hills. And, and, and I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 those are insects. You know, I don't know what kind, but those are insects. And Bob's like, no, those are woodpeckers, daddy. <laughs> I'm like, Bella, I, I, Bella, I know, I know that they're not woodpeckers. We, we, it's just a field. Woodpeckers, are, they're not, these are insects kind of in the grass or something. No, daddy, woodpeckers. <laughs> woodpeckers. I'm going, Listen, a disciple is not above her teacher, little one. I've lived longer. I've gone to school. I have a master's degree. Why do I have to try to prove this to you? And yet, you see, it's this impulse in us. It's the woodpecker, God. He's going, no, it's not. We don't see reality properly. Our hearts are not aligned correctly. We need to learn how to breathe. We need to stay close to Jesus, to follow behind him. And watch how he does it. And listen to what he says. And go with reality according to Christ. Because we don't get it, even though we're going to think we do. And that's what he's coming at us here. He's going to help us say, man, stop thinking, disciples, that you're above me. Trust me. Trust me.
And then he gives this um, goal, essentially, of discipleship in the last part of verse 40. And this is really the, the last thing we'll look at here this morning. Read verse 40 in entirety and, and notice the goal of Christ's discipleship. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So in other words, this is what I'm after with you, disciples. Ultimately, that you will be like me. That you will learn from me what it looks like to be human again. That Christ essentially is the blueprint of, of the new humanity. Of what we were created to be in the image of God and what we marred up in Adam because we thought we knew better. Say, so I'm going to make you like me. I want you to be my disciple and learn. But he puts next to this idea of being like him, uh, the, the, this phrase here, fully trained. Fully trained. When you're fully trained, you will be like me. And I wanted to focus on that just for a moment because there's this beautiful sense. Again, I'm sorry, I, I, I usually don't do all that, you know, uh, lexical or language work for you actually from the pulpit. But this is too beautiful for me not to bring out. Uh, actually, the word that's rendered in the ESV here uh, as fully trained is a word that, that more broadly uh, has to do with um, something that's been restored or repaired. Uh, it's the word that's used in Mark 1.19 to describe what James and John, the fishermen, are doing in their boats with their nets. Remember what they're doing with them? They're mending their nets. It's taking something broken, taking something off, taking something that's frayed and, and, and falling apart and putting it back together. And Jesus is saying, that's what discipleship will do. You follow me and I will mend you. I will put you back together. And when it's all said and done, you will look more and more and more like me from one degree of glory to the next. Now, I wanted to show you before I point it essentially at our hearts wanted to show you how this actually played out for his disciples, how this worked with his disciples, how he mended their hearts. I mean, it's awesome because as these guys are mending their nets, he's essentially saying, come follow me and I will mend your hearts. I will mend your lives. I will teach you how to breathe again. I want to show you kind of how this worked, how the disciples kind of objected and thought they knew better, but they slowly kind of came under and learned. And at the end, they were looking like their savior. This is the, this is the story we are in. This is the path we are on. I'll give you just two examples and I'll draw it to a close. Do you remember when Jesus was walking with that Samaritan woman or talking, I'm sorry, with that Samaritan woman by the well? You remember when his disciples, they had gone away to get food or whatever, and they come back and they see Jesus kind of in dialogue with this woman. And we read this in John 4, 27. They marveled that he was talking with the woman. They said, what does Jesus think he's doing? It's not the way I would handle this situation. 
I mean, this is a little awkward. This is a little off. I mean, I thought that, that, you know, we shouldn't be, that women are beneath us, right? I, I thought that, that Samaritan women are, are unclean, perpetually. I thought that this could get us in trouble with God. This doesn't look good, Jesus. Let me take over. But they don't, thankfully. They just kind of sit back and they watch. And they watch as Jesus, man, is just dialoguing. I mean, it's amazing. That text is amazing. Just dialoguing with this woman, getting to her heart. He, he's not concerned about her, 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 you know, her gender. He's not concerned about her, her ethnicity. He's not even concerned about, in one sense, about the fact that she is a horrible adulterer. He's concerned about her heart and he's coming after her. And you know what? There's no flash of judgment in his eyes and there's no sting of condemnation in his words. There's just kindness. There's just mercy for the outcast, for the low, for the broken. And the disciples, man, they're sitting back at a distance. They're watching and they're learning how to breathe again. Their hearts are being mended as they watch the Savior live in love. Stereotypes, do away with them or whatever. Wow, this is the love of God. This is what we're called to have. Do you remember that time when the people around Jesus were so stoked on him that they're like, man, we just got to bring our kids. We got to bring our kids. We just want Jesus to touch them. We just want Jesus to lay hands on our children. They had no doubt that Jesus would be welcoming to them, but all the disciples <laughs> despise this idea. We read in Mark 10, verse 13, that the disciples rebuked them, the parents, or maybe the kids. I don't know. I assume the, the parents. Like, what are you doing? Do you know who this guy is? It's kind of like if we were to try to, you know, stop. I don't know who's your favorite movie star. And then the guy sitting next to him just kind of, you know, gives you the shoulder. Like, Do you know who this person is? They're too busy for you. I'm not going to take a photo with you. Who are you? These kids, they're just going to get in the way of his mission. Get them out of here. But then we read Jesus' response, and it's amazing. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant with his disciples. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And then we read down in verse 16, he took them in his arms, blessed them, laying hands on them. And the disciples still fuming, probably, still upset. Of standing back, looking and learning how to breathe, being mended, being rewired <laughs> as they watch their Savior, grace and love for all. The unimportant, the outcast for everyone. And it's, it's, it's amazing because here's what happens. When Jesus goes to the cross, when he's raised from the dead, when he pours out his spirit on his disciples, and, and all these kind of lessons that they've learned come together in their hearts, it's then that we start to read stuff like this, stuff that we see in James 1.27. Listen to this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, 
to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Kids and hurting women. That's true religion. Now I'm thinking the disciples aren't saying that on the front side of things, of following Jesus. But when they're done with Jesus, they're saying, man, Jesus, he's come for everyone, no matter where you're at. We're doing away with the stereotypes, doing away with the criticisms and the judgments and the I feel better than you sort of junk. I mean, the cross, I probably said this before, the ground is level at the foot of the cross and the disciples get it. Follow close behind and he puts them back together. Teaches them how to breathe. Let me ask you guys, is there anyone here that needs to be mended? Needs to be put back together, needs to be restored? The great news is that, I mean, this is the work that Jesus is doing in our lives. When we take on the call as his disciples and he comes in as the discipler and as the trainer, he commits himself to mending us, to fixing what's broken in us. And we learn from him. We follow closely behind him. We let him teach us how to think about sexuality, about money, about love for enemies, about, you know, stereotypes, about judgments, about what the church should be and what it shouldn't. We let him teach us about life itself. You know, I don't know if some of us are kind of pushing back on that or not. No, 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 I know better. And it's the blind leading the blind. We want to come under Christ and learn and let him put us back together, renewing us in his image. Let's pray. God, you are good to us and we are so grateful for um, your commitment not only to adopt us into your family, but to then bring us into your training. The discipline of the father, the, the, the full training of the son. God, help us to humble ourselves and learn from our Savior, to learn from you. Teach us how to follow you even when you're far away, God. Come near us in your spirit. Help us to read your word and talk to you in prayer and Learn from one another in community. God, help us to be a church that's disciples of you, making disciples of others, humble and broken at the foot of the cross, amazed at what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.